Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. All right, three, two, one, let's do it. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. This season is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify seeks to help you modernize your portfolio with its innovative set of options-based strategies. Full disclosure, prior to Simplify sponsoring the season, we had incorporated some of Simplify's ETFs into our ETF model mandates here at Newfound. If you're interested in reading a brief case study about why and how, visit simplify.us slash flirting with models. And stick around after the episode for an ongoing conversation about markets and convexity with the convexity maven himself, Simplify's own Harley Bassman. In this episode, I chat with Greg Openshane, partner and director of credit at Verdad Capital. Prior to joining Verdad, Greg worked as the high-yield portfolio manager at Apollo Global Management and Stone Tower Capital. Despite his background as a fundamental analyst, Greg is a quant convert. His ideas are still grounded in a strong fundamental understanding of what it means to invest in credit, but in a sector where even just acquiring data may be an edge, he lets the data speak for itself. Greg argues that within credit, excess return comes from identifying, improving, and declining credit conditions. And much like quantitative equity investing, there are certain characteristics that can provide insight into how those conditions might change. We discuss the counterintuitive findings the data has brought to light, what Greg thinks most credit investors get wrong, and how to grapple with the dimensionality problem of fixed income. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Obenshain. Greg Obenshain, welcome to the show. Very pleased to have you here. It's not often we get to chat with someone who's doing quant within the fixed income space. So I'm always eager to chat with someone who's an expert there. So thank you for joining me. Happy to join you and looking forward to it. Now, that all said, I do know that you actually started your background as a fundamental investor, not a quant. You're more of a quant convert. So let's start there. Can you walk us through your background a bit and maybe your more traditional fundamental views that you came up with? Sure. And convert's the right word. So I did about 15 years as a fundamental analyst, both as I mean, an analyst and as a portfolio manager, reading credit agreements, going to bank meetings reading the 10K. I mean, that is my training and I'm still very much a fundamental analyst. So that's how I approach the world. I think before I taught myself all the things I needed to do to become a quant, including coding, I thought it was quant was all about the code, was all about the numbers or the math. And of course, I, I find myself as I've converted to being much more quantitative, still mostly falling back on all the things I learned as a fundamental analyst and really relying on that background to create all the variables that I use. So everything I do is really still fundamental. So I still think of myself as a fundamental analyst, even though all my investing is quantitatively driven at this point. And so I think ultimately the code is a tool. It's a very powerful tool. It's something I wish I had a lot earlier in my career. The data is an incredibly powerful tool, but it's the understanding of how the markets work that really help you put it all to work. What was the catalyst that was the transition for you going from fundamental to quant? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, just I, I should have given you a little more background here. I, I mean, I was formerly at a company called Stone Tower Capital that was acquired by Apollo. I was the high yield portfolio manager at Apollo. I started off as an energy analyst, which I think 
energy debt analyst must be the greatest curse you can have, especially in the last 10 years, trying to make money in an extremely volatile industry doing a asset class that's not supposed to be volatile. I think when you go out and look at the debt world, it's very different than the equity world. First of all, you're dealing with contracts. You're dealing with bonds that they have to pay you back at the end. There's a due date and they've got to give you money. Not like equities that can never pay you anything. There's a time when the check comes due. There's a lot more companies that have debt than have equity. So the universe is much bigger. And all these companies can have multiple bonds. So it's actually a much more difficult... You have to be an expert in many more things when you do debt. You have to understand capital structures. You have to understand what the equity is going to do. You have to understand why the debt might, what that's going to do. You have to understand treasuries and what the treasury market is doing because it really does affect the debt. And that, but because they're contracts, it all lends itself to really good relative value analysis where you're trying to look, you have a huge pool of things you can compare against. And you just can't do that as a fundamental analyst. And I kept running into that problem, which is I wish I could somehow collect all this data and do all the comparisons that I want to do. And that was really the driving force. And as I started to try to do it in Excel, I realized I wasn't going to cut it. And so I bit the bullet and taught myself R and built the databases that I needed to go off and replicate what I was doing on a fundamental basis on a quantitative basis. So I want to begin the conversation before we even dive into maybe all the quantitative aspects here with what I often hear is the biggest pushback against credit as an asset class, which is that you can ignore all the fancy details. It's really just treasuries and equity and a combination of those two. And therefore, it doesn't actually really deserve a space in an asset allocation because you already likely have treasuries and equity. So I'm curious as to how you'd respond to that as someone whose whole career has been in the credit space. Yeah, sure. And this is a, a, you know, something you hear a whole lot. And it really comes originally with David Swenson back in the early 80s. I mean, he had a book, his book on portfolio management actually had a whole chapter called Impure Fixed Income, where he makes this argument that, hey, credit's just this hybrid asset class. And in some ways, that's true. If you really had perfect foresight, you could recreate credit by combining an equity and treasuries. But maybe. I mean, the thing about credit that you have to realize is that the credit spread, that part of bonds for which you're really focused on when you're doing credit, and we should talk about this because this is actually what I do. If you think about credit, what does credit mean? It means that you get a default spread over, you, you get paid to take default risk in bonds, but you don't get paid for equity upside. So you're threading this needle where you want to take a look, some credit spread and you want to make a little extra return and you don't want to hit a default. And so you get something that actually has lower drawdowns, it's safer, but you get paid a little extra. That's the goal. The argument that equities and treasury, you can recreate a credit spread through equities and bonds, it just isn't true. You can't do that. So why would you do credit, right? Why? How is credit better than either equity or bonds? I mean, the truth is that most people don't want to be 100% equities, but they also don't want to be have very low returning treasuries. Credit threads that needle. Credit gives you some return for something that has much lower drawdowns. And so this thematically, I think, gets into something that's very important about credit. And I think it's a way that a lot of people do it wrong. They go into credit and they think, I'm going to try to make a lot of returns in credit. You can do that, but it's not the right approach. You want to use credit for what it's best at. Credit is best at protecting your portfolio against drawdowns. It doesn't mean you're not going to have drawdowns. It just means that they're not going to be so severe that you're going to be sitting there panicked, not knowing what to do. But it's also going to give you some return along the way. And so when I look out and I see people say this, I think that they have a misunderstanding of what it can do for your portfolio. It can give you a steady return in your portfolio and dramatically take down the drawdown risk in your portfolio. When you're doing credit right, that's what it does. Another really sort of widely held belief or maybe common phrase that I hear when it comes to credit is that you should really only allocate to credit or perhaps maybe high yield in particular when those credit spreads are really wide, that that's when the juice is worth the squeeze. Do you think that there's some sort of underlying fundamental truth to that rule or is it just overly simplistic? Yeah. So I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to take a step back first and sort of set the stage here for how to think about credit generally. So when we think about the credit world, you can have a triple A bond like Microsoft and you can have a triple C bond like WeWork. Triple C bond, you're getting basically equity-like returns. I think WeWork's at 10% trading at 70 right now. Or you can make 2% in Microsoft. 
And the spectrum across that whole range is from triple C, the worst stuff, the equity-like stuff, to the stuff that's never going to default like Microsoft. In the middle is sort of triple B debt and double B debt. And getting to your question here, the belief is that the way to make money in credit is to go down and pick the super risky stuff, the stuff that has the juicy yields. And then that's the way you're actually going to make money in credit. The truth is that it doesn't work like that. So if you go and look at the high, where the highest returns historically have come in credit, it actually hasn't been from that low end. It hasn't been from that riskiest stuff. It's actually been from the middle, from that triple B and double B, where you're getting extra return, but you're not getting all the bad things that happen. We work as an almond son falling out of bed. You're getting paid for the risk you take. And actually, on average, it's getting better. So one of the keys to doing the credit quantitatively is moving away beyond yield, not thinking about yield. Take this concept of yield, take this concept of coupon that everybody looks at, everybody sells on it, every fund says, what's their headline? Throw it out. Doesn't work. Because if you go and chase yield, you'll also go chase losses. They're attached to each other and you can't get around that. The market is efficient. If you buy a 15% yield, you'll get a 4% return because you'll realize an 11% loss. And that's sort of the way the math works. And so what you need to do is think about credit improvement. What's getting better? What's getting worse? If I own a 4% bond that trades to 3.5%, I will do much better than owning that 8% bond that trades to 9%. And by the way, if you have a super high yield, it's not going to trade a little bit down. It's going to trade a lot down when it trades down. So that's the first thing to understand. Now, is it true that you should now let's get to the statement. You should only buy credit when credit spreads are wide. Okay. Is it true that the opportunity in credit is really good when credit spreads are wide? Absolutely. We wrote a piece in March. I think it came out March 17th. I think we nailed the bottom called like what to buy first. And we basically said, go buy high yield. Spreads are wide. These things aren't going to default that much. It's a great opportunity. And that was exactly right. But actually, if you go look holistically, we've done a lot of work at this at Verdad on our firm. If you go look and say, what should I really buy when spreads are wide? Small cap value, emerging markets. Like if you're going to swing, go swing in small cap equity, in risky equity when spreads are wide, because you'll do really, really well. If you're going to take that risk, take it. I would argue that's not what credit does. I would say that, and the way that we look at the world is that when you're buying credit, you're usually buying it for preservation of capital. So I actually say the right time to buy credit is when stuff is super tight, when the market is, yields are really low when you don't like what's going on in the rest of the market, because you'll be able to earn a return, limit your drawdowns. And then you know what you should be doing when spreads blow out in this opportunity, selling some of your credit and going into the riskier stuff. That's the way we think about it. That's the way we think the right way to go is. So I think that that is sort of a misguided, it's true when you look narrowly at the asset class. It's not true when you think holistically across your portfolio. So the entire the way that we think is, how can we create a product that delivers return while protecting against drawdown? And when I say product, I mean just credit in general. How do we think about it allocating across all our portfolios? The early 2010s saw a huge run-up in smart beta equity products. They really grew in popularity in the mid-2010s. And it seemed like in maybe 2016 through 2018, headlines would at least lead you to believe, hey, smart beta fixed income is right around the corner. That's the new frontier is quantitative fixed income. And yet it never really seemed to emerge that I know from my own conversations, my network has very few quantitative fixed income investors. And I'm curious as to where you think the barriers to entry are in the space. Why aren't more people taking a quantitative approach to credit? Yeah. So I think barriers to entry is just the right way to ask the question. And so if you think about it, let's say I want to go start a credit fund. First of all, I need to have credit expertise. First of all, there's just not as many people like me who have credit expertise. Most people have equity expertise. They don't have credit expertise. Again, credit takes is a specialized skill. Two, I got to go get the data. Where can I get the data? Exceptionally hard to get. It turns out that while well, every data provider will give you the whole, you, you, there's a thousand ways you can go get historical equity data with financials. It's very, very difficult to do in debt. In fact, for us, we had to go build our own custom database, which was a massive undertaking, line by line, matching bonds to equities. And so that kind of database is just very, very hard to access. So there's just a, a barrier to entry issue. And then, by the way, you get into fixed income and they tell you this 
thing about being a quib. Wait, wait a minute. I'm not allowed to trade half the bonds unless I have a qualified institutional buyer. What? That's crazy. And so the barriers to entry to this space are massive. But also, I think there's a problem. I think that most people that try to break into this space try to do it through the distress side. And why do they do that? Because the yields are higher. Because the potential returns are higher. Because they have these periods of time when they get great returns. And guess what? That's a smaller market. There's not as much room for people to come in. And so you start thinking about building quantitative models around there. First of all, they don't work as well because there's a lot more idiosyncratic risk in the distressed market. Two, you can't get the liquidity you want because there aren't enough names down there. And three, you're probably going to blow yourself up relatively early. So the opportunity for quant credit is actually huge, but it's at a higher quality level where the returns are higher, where the opportunities are there. But it takes expertise. It takes data. It's not something that anybody can just jump into. And I can tell you from experience, having beaten my way into it, it took a ton of work. So people might look at the credit space and look at some sort of high level concept, like a maybe a default adjusted spread or maybe yield as a main driver of total return and credit. I'm curious as to what you think the main driver of cross-sectional excess return and credit is. Yeah, exactly. So it goes back to this whole idea of what's getting better, what's getting worse. How do you think about that? And moving away from yield to this idea of, and the way that we express is spread, you know, you spread to treasuries, which is really still a kind of compensation. But moving away from this idea that you need to make money through the coupon, through that part of it, and toward the idea that what you want to do is provide capital to companies that are getting better, right? They think where good things are happening. And you could do that on a fundamental basis, but on a quantitative basis in credit, it turns out that it actually works pretty well because what's beautiful about quant and credit is when you go to figure out what's going to get better, what's going to get worse, you already have this concept of rating agencies who already have this concept of upgrades and downgrades. It's already built into the spectrum. In equities, they don't, you don't have a list of bonds that are rated or equities that are AAA down to C. It doesn't exist. Now, you say what you want about the rating agencies. They're basically... They're sort of the early quants, right? They made an effort to force rank the entire universe. If you use that, you don't have to accept their ratings, but you can use those ratings as data and use that concept that, okay, there's, I know in fixed income, and because this is the way it works, that if I have a bond trading like it's a double B bond and it gets better, it'll trade like it's a triple B bond eventually. And I can tell you exactly what that's worth. I know what that's worth. I know how many points that's worth. I know what a percent return worth that is. So. For me, when I look at bonds and the way we think about it is, okay, I can make money through the carry, through the coupon, but the way I really make money is by understanding those transitions, those upgrades, those downgrades. That's how we build those our models. What's getting better? What's getting worse? Where are they moving within the universe? So if the important thing to get right in terms of finding excess returns is sort of figuring out where the upgrades and downgrades are going to be. What do you think the actual important characteristics are for sort of identifying those features? Yeah. So let's think about the landscape of debt for a second again. So you have super high quality companies that are investment grade, you have high yield, but they're all doing the same thing. What's a business do? It's in the business of spending dollar and making dollar. And I think when you really step away and look at why it is that investment grade companies generally don't default and high yield companies do. What's going on? Like, what are are the drivers you're getting at? And we're all taught that when you think about the high yield in the investment grade market, that the triple A is the highest, and there's a triple B, and there's a double B, and there's a single B, and a triple C. And that's not useful for anybody to think about, because how did you arrive at those labels? Well, people think, oh, one has more debt, one doesn't. I think there's a simpler way to think about it. And it's this. If I'm borrowing money at 7%, and my return on investment is 4%, I am liquidating the company. That is a single B of credit. That is what it is. If I make 20% on my returns, not even 20%, maybe say I make 7% return on assets or 10% return on invested capital, and I'm paying 3% on my debt. By the way, I don't even need debt because I produce so much cash that I just got some debt because I was doing something. Maybe I wanted cash overseas. I don't know. I got a little bit. That's investment grade. That's the difference. Okay. And so the number of times you go in, in, in an investment grade, guys, you don't have to think about this. You're thinking about, growth earnings. In high yields, you're thinking about survival. And what is the best indicator of survival? 
making money. What's the best indicator that you're going to die? Slow liquidation by taking on cost of capital that's larger than you, or cost of capital that's higher than your return on invested capital. That's the rule. Can you do it that easily? No, but there's great proxies for that. Total assets is what I is it's a sign of success. To get a lot of assets, you have to have done something right. That's actually a really good indicator. But other things like revenue to you decompose profits, right? One of the terms that comes out of the DuPont analysis is revenue to total assets, which seems like a bizarre metric. Well, why would that be useful? Actually, it's kind of a return on spending metric. How many dollars am I getting to the company for the money I've spent historically? That's really useful. And you know what? That's better than debt to EBITDA. If I'm an oil and gas company, debt to EBITDA means nothing because my EBITDA, cut my EBITDA in half or drive it or my profit negative from there because I have so much depreciation and amortization. But if I have a good sense of how much I generally spend and then what my revenue is on top of that and what my return is, I can get a very good idea of return. How profitable am I versus the cost of my capital? And so I see this all the time when people go into debt. The thing that you've got to realize about yield comes with a real cost. That's a cost to the company. If you have a lot of interest expense, you cannot reinvest. You can't help. You can't try to grow your way out of the problem if you can't reinvest. You are constantly having to cut things you probably shouldn't. And so leverage kills, not because of the debt level itself. It's because of it distracts from your ability to reinvest in the business. Also, you can't make mistakes. If you have a ton of debt, you have this sword hanging where you, you can't mess up. And so once you mess up once, you become more dangerous. Your debt cost goes up. You have lower returns, your cost goes up and you get into this world of trouble. So those are the kinds of things that really drive it. Building metrics that really reflect that, that capture that is what drives the upgrade downgrade. And you can see it by the way. So if metrics as simple as revenue to total assets are improving, that's good. If they're getting worse, that's bad. Here's another one. If you're adding debt, not good. Generally, you need more money and you're increasing interest expense. Like You don't want to be adding. If you already have a lot of debt, you don't want to be adding more. That's not a good sign. You are going in the wrong direction. You at least want to be paying it down and not paying it down by saying our adjusted EBITDA was higher, so our leverage went down. No, really dollars to the debt. Debt pay down is one of the most wonderful return strategies a company can have. If your company has a lot of debt and they're paying you dividends, you should be angry. You should be very angry. Because what they should be doing is paying down their debt, because that still goes to you. That dollar of debt pay down went directly to you. Your equity value went up, but now they have a lot more flexibility. Now they have an ability to reinvest, and then they can pay you the dividend, but pay the debt down first. So I think there's just a lot of mistakes made in the market, not thinking about profitability, not thinking about capital allocation. So those things all work to when you build debt models and you can make money off of it. So is the catalyst for the excess return the actual agency, rating agency upgrades and downgrades? Or does the market sort of forecast that, price that in, and you see price move into an expected upgrade or downgrade? Yeah. So I think most people would say, oh, the rating agencies don't know anything. And of course, the market knows it. The market always prices it first. And to some extent, that's true, right? Because the rating agencies are not in the business of willy-nilly upgrading and downgrading people, right? They're going to be very slow to upgrade or downgrade somebody. By the time they do it, you knew it was coming. So the market does price it first. Interestingly, because they actually use consistent methodologies, they get a lot of individual credits wrong. But on the whole, they generally, it's a forced ranking exercise. They generally do pretty well at forced ranking. So when we've done, we've done and broken this down and said, okay, where's the market rating it? Where's the agencies rating it? What happens? We wrote a piece on this. Like what happens when there's a disagreement there? Well, it turns out that a lot of the time the market's right and the rating agencies come towards the market. But also about half the time, the market actually comes a little bit towards the rating agencies, especially when stuff is sold off relative to the ratings. And so when you actually dig into the data, yeah, the market's right most of the time, but you really can't ignore what the agencies are saying, or at least you should do so at your peril. And where we see this most is where the rating agencies say, listen, this is a B3 bond. I mean, that's one step above C. And you'll see people buying it left and right because it has a lot of yield. And sure enough, those are the worst things you can possibly buy. The downgrade rates on those are horrific, but actually even worse, the actual returns on those are horrific. And so people reach down to take that extra yield. And the agency said the whole time, and I'll give credit to Moody's here on oil and gas, which they screamed. I mean, if you go look at their ratings on oil and gas, all up until the oil and gas crisis, they were low. They were telling you whole time, these guys can't support the capital structure. They had it right. 
and the market had it dead wrong. So I think um, I have a lot of respect for the process that the agencies go through, even if I disagree on individual credits. And of course, I will. There's thousands of credits that are writing. So. so in theory, the rating agencies, there's a qualitative process, but there's a big quantitative process to what they do as well. And they're fairly transparent in their methodologies. They've written quite a bit about how they're incorporating different variables over time. I'm interested in knowing as you evaluate at least what's public about their process and what you've sort of come to understand as their process, and you've built your own sort of private process for understanding where upgrades and downgrades will occur. What sort of characteristics do you think that they overemphasize in their analysis? And what do you think they underemphasize? Yeah. So, I mean, they're very good about publishing their methodologies, which is, listen, if you're a an analyst somewhere and you're looking to get into the industry, well, I think one thing that people should do and they don't do is just go read those methodologies. They tell you how to think about an industry. It's pretty good. Listen, they do a good job. They've been doing this for years. Some of these ratings are 100 years old. They've been doing this for a while. They've got some good ideas. You know, I think anytime you need to publish and have a formal methodology, you tend to overemphasize things like quality, like stability of the business. You're talking to the company, so they're selling you, they're pitching you on their growth prospects. They're pitching on the quality of the management team. One thing I've never been able to figure out is how you judge the quality of the management team. I still don't know other than looking at the numbers, which you've already done. So I think, um, I think they are anybody who has to do fundamental analysis and write about it and make a story about it, which is what they're doing, is going to be misled a little bit by that story. They're never going to pitch the company that actually quantitatively looks pretty good, but scary. And they're always going to rate it a little too low. Conversely, they're always going to rate the company that's been around for a long time, has a very deep management team, excellent ESG practices, very, very highly. And that's probably not worth it. So that's generally where the mistakes are made, but they're actually the same mistakes that are made on the fundamental side. I don't like to criticize the agencies because I think they get more than their fair share of criticism for doing what actually is a very good service. Because you can go online and for free, see where they rated things and how they do their methodology. It's pretty good. I'm not going to complain. Now that you've accumulated all this data and you've got the data set to work with, I'm curious as to what maybe is the most counterintuitive finding that the data has brought to light for you. Maybe especially in light, given your background as a fundamental investor and some preconceived biases you might have had coming into it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think... I think there's some really simple ones, right? There's things like debt to EBITDA, right? Every debt investor uses debt to EBITDA. It doesn't actually test that well compared to other metrics. Equity market valuations, equity market gets it right a lot. So actually equity market value over debt is actually a far better thing to use or enterprise value to debt. And then there's things that were totally stupid that work and you sort of can't believe it, but you, the data tells you one of the dumbest things you see is total assets. So if you have two companies that are trading at roughly the same spread or the same yield. Pick the one that's bigger. It's much less likely to go default and it's got a lot more options if bad things happen and returns are generally higher. Total assets is a very strong variable of many variables. Not something I would have ever, as a fundamental analyst, really hung my hat on. I mean, I'm really digging into the profitability of the country. I know the company, I know what's going on. Yeah, how big is it? How long has it been around? Listen, as total assets are a sign of past success. Something went right. They've got a lot of hidden value somewhere. Not a bad thing to use. I mean, that, that I think was surprising. You know, there's some things that I think are counterintuitive. You know, there's been a lot of focus on private debt and private lending. I think there's a thought that that outperforms public debt. My opinion and my data says it actually doesn't. It's just a form of taking extra risk for extra yield. And we've written a lot about that. But I think right now where I see signs of just private debt was in a category that didn't really exist before, and it's got a good marketing story behind it, but ultimately it's lending to highly levered private equity firms in the single B category. And that's what a lot of it is, not all of it, but a massive share. And there's no way that the private debt markets could have grown as quickly as they have without the private equity market beating them most of the deal. So I think that's something that was, I think, counterintuitive to most people. And I think that also tying into that, there's this, I think when you're outside the debt world, people will tell you, oh, I'm buying floating rate senior secured debt because that's the safest debt out there, right? It's floating rate on a rate risk. It's senior secured. So how can it get any better? Yeah, that's actually the worst debt you can buy. And here's the reason. If I'm a really strong credit, I issue fixed rate as far out as I can. 
So the market's not going to give me fixed rate, long dated debt, unless I'm a good issuer. If you are a weak issuer and I'm concerned about you, I'm going to give you floating rate secured debt with covenants. It is not a signal that the debt is good. It's a signal that the debt is weak. And so that's something I see all the time when people talk about debt is a misunderstanding of who can actually issue what kind of structure. There's a lot of characteristics that we use in the quant equity world that ties back to the underlying health or sort of quality characteristics of the business itself. And I would presume that a lot of those characteristics cross over into having meaning and impact in the world of credit. And so I'm curious whether you've looked into some of these factors. I mean, you mentioned total assets. I think in the quant equity world, we might just look at something like market cap, and that's the size factor. So I'm curious if there's others, and even if something like equity price momentum can be an indicator in something like credit. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that works in equity works in debt. In fact, the very first thing I did when I was engaging in this process was to go read all the equity literature and test all the equity variables that worked. So if you sort of broadly look at factor research in equities, it's value, it's momentum. Both of those work. Both of those are core to my process. There's quality as an overlay, right? As a way to prevent when you're, say you're doing something, you're doing value, there's sort of a quality overlay to make sure that you're not buying something that's about to go imminently bankrupt. That works in debt too. There's a lot of factors. I mean, I think very simple things like the Petrosky score is a paper by Petrosky in I think year, around 2000 that laid out a whole bunch of composite factors that work in equity, works in debt too. Works exactly the same. So there's a huge amount of crossover. The problem and the challenge with debt is how do you normalize for everything? How do you define value in debt? It's very different than value in equity. In debt, it's really coming up with an idea of what's the probability default or the relative ranking of that bond to others, which we can go into more detail on. The core ideas of equity of quant exactly the same in credit. One of the issues that I always sort of imagine when dealing with a big credit database is just the sheer dimensionality of the problem. When I work in the equity space and I talk about buying Coca-Cola stock and you buy Coca-Cola stock, generally it's the same stock with rare exception. If I buy a bond from Coca-Cola, it precludes you from buying that bond. And you may choose to buy a bond of a totally different maturity and coupon and has totally different characteristics to it. I'm curious as to how you think about tackling this dimensionality problem. Yeah, and this is not a small problem. This is the challenge in dealing with that. Is if you're an investment grade, you have 15 different issues, and in high yield, you can have two or three. And they have different maturity dates. They trade at different spreads. They actually could have different security levels. One could be secured, one could be unsecured. So that dimensionality actually turns into a bit of an advantage when you start to think about it. So the, the very first thing you need to do is you can simplify where you can get the average spread for all the bonds and just use that as your price and look at, I guess, create a composite bond and a composite equity and use those. And that works. But then you can start to think about some really interesting things. Like I think think different tenors on bonds is one of the most interesting things. In equities, you don't have this choice of tenor. You're basically buying the longest dated stream you can. You're going to get paid last and furthest out. But in bonds, I can get paid tomorrow. I can get paid six months, I can get paid 10 years from now. I I have my choice. And that concept of duration becomes really an advantage when you start to think about risk. If I think a company is going to get upgraded and I want to be very exposed to it, I can buy a very long bond because it will move a lot more than the shorter bond. If I like the company, but I'm concerned about various things, I could buy the shorter bond and I can reduce my exposure to that company without actually changing my dollar amount. So my exposure is actually varying by the duration of the bond. When you start to think tactically about that, that gives you a lot more options. And it's something that we definitely use very actively. So the dimensionality there becomes an advantage. Same thing with security. If I think the bond's going to get upgraded, I want the lowest rated, the most subordinated, longest dated bond in that capital structure. And I might be doing it in a very safe company. So I'm not taking a lot of risk but I'm increasing my exposure to the upside that I think is there. Conversely, if I really like a bond, but it's got a lot of leverage, I've owned bonds where I'm completely covered by the cash on the balance sheet that just haven't been taken out yet and trading at a high yield because people don't like the credit, but completely covered by revolver or cash, take your choice. So some of that you can model. 
And there's still a lot of that you can't. A lot of that you just have to have had experience and credit and think about capital structures and decide where you want to be. Talking about modeling, one of the things that whenever I think about a high dimensionality problem, it seems to me like it's often an area that might be well suited for machine learning, where you can have these different statistical techniques that can help you pick up on interaction and conditional effects among all these different characteristics and variables. I know you've started to incorporate machine learning and you've published a couple of pieces on machine learning. I was hoping you might be able to recap some of the ways in which you have incorporated it and it's been successful for you. Yeah. So I think um, in credit, especially machine learning is really important because there's a lot, there's a lot more nonlinear and not even just duration is actually a pretty linear concept. The longer the bond, the more risk you have. It's actually, that's actually pretty linear. You can kind of model that in a, in a linear model. When you start to get into different rating categories, and by rating categories, it's shorthand for quality. So shorthand for bonds that might go default and bonds that probably won't go default. Bonds that might go default act completely differently than bonds that won't go default. In fact, some of the variables, momentum variables in particular, are actually opposite. So if you have a super risky bond and it starts to trade off, it usually keeps going the wrong way. Whereas an investment-grade bond, when it trades off, it mean reverts very quickly. It's a contract. It has to play off at par. It's not going bankrupt. The mean reversions very quickly. On that. So you actually have an opposite sign there. And that's bizarre. It's really hard to handle in a linear model. And so machine learning is very well suited to fixed income. And so what we did was we actually went out and took all the data, built, we had about 90, I think we used about 98 variables. A lot of them were custom variables that we built based on experience from, from experience in our linear models, actually, and built an upgrade-downgrade model to look at how we could better predict upgrades and downgrades in credit. And by upgrades and downgrades in credit, I'm talking about price upgrades and downgrades. Is it getting better or worse? And we use the shorthand of ratings to describe that. But really what we're doing is price improvement or price, uh, price uh, decline. And we did this with Brian Gigano, who's um, our quant at um, Verdant, and, and we worked on this together. And this was, uh, I think, highly successful. It became very clear to us that you know, if you looked at the top, it actually where it was really successful was on the downgrade side. So if we said that a bond, it, when it said a bond was going to get downgraded, on average across history, the total returns for bonds were about 8 9% since 2000. The return for our bottom downgrade was close to zero, just above zero. So I think it was maybe 3 or 4%. It was highly effective at identifying bonds that were going to get worse, irrespective of if they were rated triple C or if they were rated triple B. Across the rating spectrum, it did a great job of figuring out what was going to go down in quality and much better job than the linear models did. So it was, it's a very good thing to use for credit. So speaking of non-linearities, I think one of the very well-documented popular non-linear trades that shows up in credit is the fallen angels trade which is this example of a structural edge that emerges in downgrades due to institutional constraints within the credit space. I'm curious that when you survey the data and sort of review your experience as a fundamental manager, do you see evidence of other similar types of trades within credit? Yeah, this fallen angel trade is a great trade. It's been around for a while. It's actually what got me interested originally in trying to figure out why it worked. It's broader than just fallen angels, by the way. Basically, the, the category of debt just below investment grade tends to be the highest, absolute highest returns you can get in credit, as I mentioned before, higher than triple Cs, higher than the junk, because it actually has a better base rate of upgrade to investment grade. And when you go back up or you recover from having dropped down, you do really well. They also happen to have a little bit longer duration, higher quality. All the things I was talking about that work, works there, works brilliantly. I would say that's the best opportunity in credit. The worst opportunity in credit is at the polar opposite of that range, where if you're in a high yield manager, you usually have a triple C basket. It means you can't buy more than X triple C, say 20%. So what do you do when you're trying to get yield? You try to load up on all the stuff that's trading like a triple C, but not really rated like a triple C. And so I see this all the time when you actually do the historical returns on what's really, really bad. It's that stuff. It's that stuff that has super high yield right below the triple C basket because that is where everybody's reaching for yield. And the markets are mostly efficient, but greed still is a big factor. And the greed factor really drives some pretty, pretty horrible returns. I think that's sort of the flip side of the fallen interest. I'm curious as to what your take on 
private credit in the B spaces. I know this is an area you've had done a lot of research on. Obviously, private credit has grown as an asset class. What does the data tell you as far as you can tell? Yeah, so private credit's really interesting, right? Because it sounds so good. You know, all these companies who can't get capital and we're going to go out and the banks aren't lending to them anymore. So there's this real opportunity to go make some great returns providing capital to private credit. And then you ask yourself, well, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I don't remember a whole lot of people being starved for loans. It hasn't really seemed to be the problem in the market that there's just not enough loans being made. And why are the banks getting out of this? This is bizarre. If this is such a good opportunity, why are banks not doing these loans? They're the ones who are in the best position to do it. They don't have to go source their customers. The customers are there. I mean, private credit shop has to go source the customers. That's crazy expensive. How could this be good? What's really happening? Private credit, in large part, is a euphemism for private equity lending. And it's no different than what's been going on in the leveraged loan market. Now, some of those structures are great. Don't get me wrong. Some of these private equity deals are, are wonderful deals to do. I'm, I'm not just saying they're bad. But for the most part, you're dealing with a counterparty who is pushing leverage as far as it's going to go. They've got much better lawyers than you. The banks are working for them, not you. The issuer is not a repeat issuer, but the private equity company is. And they make all their fees issue. So you know what's coming your way is going to be over-levered and not well-documented, or at least not the credit group is not going in your favor. So I think, and it falls into that part of credit that I just spoke about, that single B area where you're not triple C, but you're getting the, you can sort of reach real. So I think the setup is really bad in private credit. And I don't really need to argue this too strongly because the public face of private credit are BDCs that deliver negative 40% returns in March. So when things go bad, the asymmetry on these are horrible. This is where debt gets a bad name. If you're getting paid 8% on a loan and you go down negative, go down 40%, that's just not a good trade. So I think there's a lot of reaching for a yield there. There's a lot of storytelling that's happening, but I'm challenged to see that private credit is truly a solution to a problem that really existed and not something that's really just being sold. So one of the things that I think a lot of quants that I talk to are struggling with right now is sort of emergent phenomena that a depth of data is just not going to help you with. And when I look at the credit space, naively, I would presume that the expanding role of monetary and fiscal policy is something that's still somewhat new, but something that's going to have a really big impact. So I'm curious, how is it affecting your research? How are you thinking about incorporating these new emergent features? Well, first of all, credit is no less affected by the Fed than the equity market. Accommodative monetary policy reduces default risk. And so names that should have, I would have thought would, would go, it takes a long time to go bankrupt now, a very long time. And you can get, there always seems to be a refinancing wave where companies that should have been dead years ago get refinanced because the market is just, it's very accommodative. So I think that's hard. That is hard. And, and I do, I don't buy into the Fed bailing out the high yield market. What they did last March was actually really about the fallen angel market. It was really about the investment grade market. They were trying to make sure that the mutual funds that were forced to sell investment grade bonds because they became fallen angels could do it and not destroy the liquidity of the market. That's what that was really about. Companies can still default. You still have to get paid your spread because you'll get hurt very badly, very quickly if you try to buy something that should go default and does. I mean, it's just, it, it's probably the best evidence of this is that we have data on the credit spread for the last at least a hundred years. I mean, and really, if you go back, you could probably get it for the railroad bonds in the 1800s, right? So we know what credit spreads have generally been on higher quality debt, but it's useful. And they're actually a little wide right now relative to the very long histories. So there's good evidence that while the Fed can affect rates, they can affect the short rate in particular, have a very hard time sustainably suppressing the credit spread because the credit spread reflects something real, which is losses, losses that investors will take. So I go back and forth on how much impact it has. The models all still work very well. I haven't seen a whole lot of change. When I look at my spreads between my deciles over time, it's been very stable and the opportunities haven't really gone away 
in the same way that they've gone away in the equity markets, where they're reversed actually for a little while. That hasn't happened in the credit markets. The credit markets still seem to be very rational, mostly because I think the threat of default is always very real. So I hate to timestamp a podcast because I like these to be evergreen, but you mentioned the fact that you thought spreads aren't that tight. And yet if I look at a really naive measure of spreads, like the Bank of America high yield OAS, I think it's now just reached points that it hasn't seen since 2007. So I'm curious as to how you would reconcile those two ideas, that it's the tightest it's been in almost 15 years, and yet you would sort of say, no, maybe it's fair or even potentially a little wide. Yeah. So the BAA spread is what I was talking about. So this is the investment grade spread just over a very long period. Of time. It's very tight right now. Don't get me wrong. Actually, within high yield, we'll talk specifics right now. So it's early April 2021, right? Triple C spread is very tight right now. And that's actually what's driving the overall high yield spread tighter. The double B spread, which is the high end of high yield, is... And actually, by the way, investment grade spreads are also pretty tight. The high end of high yield is actually tight, but not much tighter than it's been. It's not at extremes. And that's actually half the market. So that's really being driven by the triple C spread, which ends up when you take an average being really important because it's a smaller part of the market, maybe 20% of the market. But because the spreads are so wide, they disproportionately affect the average spread. So there is a composition element to this. But let's go back to what I, I this idea of when do you buy credit? Why do you buy credit? And how do you make money in credit? Would I say now is a great time to drive triple C bonds with spread site? No, because that tends to be very, when the market cycles, those get slammed. And so you're upside downside of that makes no sense. But if you're trying to invest in something that's going to be able to at least minimize your drawdowns while giving you some return, you probably want to invest in relatively safe credit or higher quality credit at exactly times when spreads are tight. And I know that's counterintuitive, but tight spreads isn't, necessarily the best indicator of credit returns. Credit returns are driven by the business cycle. So when do you have a business cycle? You have a business cycle when the yield curve is inverted. You have a business cycle when actually spreads are starting, not going doing what they're doing right now, which is going down, right? They're going up and going up quickly and triple C's are going. So triple C's going tighter means that safer quality, you're further away from a credit event. You typically see Actually, the Fed starting to lower rates even more because they're concerned and they've raised rates and then they're lowering them because now they're concerned about the economy and they're seeing data and they're, and they're telling none of those things are happening right now. So it's actually a fairly benign environment. There's a good argument you should be long risk right now if you are actually following that methodology. But also, if you don't want to be 100% equities, you want to make some return in something that's going to give you lower drawdowns, credit's good. So this counterintuitive thing that actually maybe the right time to buy credit. Is when spreads are kind of tight. Just don't go buy the stuff that should never have tight spreads, right? <laughs> that's and that and that's what I'd say about it right now. Now, I'd prefer if spreads were eight hundred, but we don't have that opportunity right now. Greg, last question for you: The world seems to be healing a little bit from the COVID crisis. More and more people I talk to every day are on their first or even second round of vaccine. Fingers crossed the world is open up by the time this podcast goes live. What are you most looking forward to in the future? I'm excited to travel again and go places. I think uh, excited to have barbecues, excited to have dinner parties, excited to do all the things that we haven't been able to do. I know you're, uh, you've already traveled. You're already in an exotic place, but I think it's, uh, I've been in the Northeast. I'm ready to get out and go someplace warm especially coming out of the dark, cold winter of the Northeast that I know all too well. There's nothing you want more after that than a nice spring barbecue. Well, Greg, I can't thank you enough for joining me. Highly educational, really enjoyed it. Unique perspective. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again soon. Great. Thanks. If you're enjoying the season, please consider heading over to your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a rating or review and sharing us with friends or on social media. It helps new people find us and helps us grow. Finally, if you'd like to learn more about newfound research, our investment mandates, mutual funds, or associated ETFs, please visit thinknewfound.com. And now, welcome back to my ongoing conversation with Harley Bassman. Some people might look at a portfolio that just buys the S&P 500 and either an out-of-the-money put or an out-of-the-money call or maybe a combination of both as being a little bit simplistic. But I think that probably that apparent simplicity belies how deceivingly difficult 
it can be to manage the path dependency of convex instruments. So hoping you could spend a little time expanding on some of these complications and maybe some ways in which they need to be navigated. I've written a few times about the dangers of passive investing. And by danger, I don't mean to the investor per se. I mean that as money has gone from active management to passive management, that creates a negatively convex profile. There's a long reason why that's the case, but it adds negative convexity to the market by the dynamic of how this money flows in and out. Let's take it off the table for a second and go back to the more simple idea. I kind of think that if you're a professional investor or you spend a great deal of time in the topic, you're welcome to go pick single names. And you can be very clever about doing that. You do your homework, you size it properly, you source out interesting things, be my guest. I think for a lot of people, the idea really is having the right horizon and allocating accordingly and being consistent about it. I think a lot of the simple strategies of laddering, of dollar averaging in, they're just not wrong. And that's okay. I mean, everybody wants to go to the cocktail party and brag about how they bought Amazon at $10, which is a good story. But truth be told, I'm sure they bought pets.com also way south. So I think nothing wrong with simplicity. What's more important is that you're not too conservative or too aggressive. You invest in a manner that is consistent. I left PIMCO a couple of years ago, more than that actually, and I had my 401k with them. And I had, I don't know, 60, 65% in one of the equity type funds and 35% in one of the bond type funds. They were enhanced. They weren't just playing up Vanguard style. And I will say that that's basically been my best investment over time because I don't look at it and it just grinds away quietly and it's done very well because I haven't had to do anything to it. Admittedly, the Fed helped a lot by pumping an X trillion dollars, but what's wrong with that? Now, what helps is in having optionality on top of that. And so when you go and you add some wings to it that work in your favor, you will catch a few home runs. I mean, going back to the bigger concept of equity versus debt versus other instruments, what is a stock? I mean, we call it an asset, but what the stock really is, it's a call option on a company where the strike price is the value of their bonds. That's why when you see a billionaire, most of them tend to have started companies and they own the stock in their company, not the bonds in their company. And so owning equities over a very long horizon, I mean, there are guys out there right now, these stocks are crazy rich and they go down by half. Maybe they're right. But over the fullness of time, equities are a call option. And to the extent that you own equities and with Simplify, you go and add optionality to that. Owning options on options is not the worst idea in the world over the course of time. And so I kind of like that. I think people probably make the mistake of being too conservative sometimes with their money. Because if you think about it, the bond trade in this description over here is actually short the put, whereas the equity, the stock, is long the call. So being long bonds, I mean, I own plenty of them, but you got to keep that construct in mind that you're short the option when you own a bond that's not treasury. Mm-hmm.